Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're revisiting one of my favorite topics, and that is foraging. Our guest today is David Hamilton. David is a forager, a horticulturalist, and an explorer. He's the author of several books on this topic, including Wild Ruins and the Self-Sufficient-ish Bible, and he lives in the southwest of England. He has a brand new book that came out this April, and it's entitled Where the Wild Things Grow, A Forager's Guide to the Landscape. This book explores wild foods available throughout throughout um, nearly every conceivable landscape that you can imagine, from moors to woodlands and the coastline to towns and city streets, local parks, and even your own back garden. It's so nice to meet you, David. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, lovely to meet you too. Yeah. So I guess I always like to start with this question of asking, you know, how did you get into foraging? Is this something that you've been interested in for many years? Yeah, um, I've asked that question quite a lot and I the trouble is I never have a quite a, a succinct answer because it's I think it's like most of these things it's it would be great if it was overnight and it happened very quickly uh, but the truth was it was sort of gradual and crept in almost almost organically itself um, but I think the I remember when I was a kid I remember making nettle soup in my parents garden I had a big nettle mm-hmm. patch um, and and doing that because I think nettles were something a little bit dangerous. They were, we were told not to touch them. And so the fact that you could eat them was kind of exciting. Uh, and picking blackberries with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I suppose early, very early 20s uh, with my first sort of real breakaway holiday with friends. Went away for five weeks uh, hitchhiking around the country and ended up in South Wales, um, a lovely part of the world. Uh, it, well, sort of tucked in, it's funny, there's, there's, it's quite industrial there, but there's these little pockets that are still quite rural. And we ended up in this place called Merthyr Mawr. Um, and the friends of friends, whose uh, house it was, took me on some foraging trips. And we had wild garlic and had um, gorse flowers a few other things and that and that's what really started opening my eyes to it and then as the years went on I tried to learn more and more uh, and I think I went to university as a mature student so sort of mid-20s and um, started to get quite nerdy about it um, and slightly obsessive um, uh, but I mean back then there wasn't much information it was quite hard fought to, to mm-hmm. find out these things so um, would be very early 2000s at this point uh, and that's the sort of next big leap I've done little bits in between those two uh, and at that point got obsessive I've started looking for mushrooms started looking I was living in Oxford at the time and exploring any little wild pocket and uh, just wanting to know what everything was and I had one question can you eat it that was my only question for any plant any mushroom uh, and was amazed to find how many you could. Um, and a friend's friend was taught by his granddad. He taught me quite a lot around that time. He was a mycologist, Thanks. part of the uh, British Mycological Association. Um, he still is part of it. Uh, and he taught me quite a lot. So there was like little leaps, lots of little leaps on the way, meeting mm-hmm. other people, and then a lot of self-study. 
over so I think the five initial years and then writing about it and teaching about it and as soon as you write or teach as you know you start to really research a subject a lot more so they're my there's my long answer <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's great um well I guess when you think about landscapes and foraging what can you share with us about the types of landscapes where you can find um, wild edible foods, um, in particular in the in the area where where you spend a lot of time there in in, in Southwest England. Well, I, uh, I I'm I'm quite lucky where I am. So we're we're quite close to quite a large woodland, or quite a few large woodlands here, which isn't true for all of Britain. Um, but also there's and that's great certain times of year for wild garlic for mushrooms mm-hmm. um so they're they're nice places and I, and I think there's always that idea where you, you need to go to the woods to forage and it's not always the case and i find there's other uh less explored little corners mm-hmm. uh near where i live that are, are good as well um have you, have you come across the term edgeland before it's, yeah i'm uh, thinking it's is it kind of like at a hedgerow or at the, the edge of a field or what do you mean by edgeland yeah. so okay it, it's a term that that's used to describe something that's not quite a town and not quite the countryside but something in between ah, okay so it's it's those edges of it's it's, it's a fairly new term um uh so yeah those so it could be somewhere that used to be industrial it could mm-hmm. be somewhere um that has a, a ruin on it. So that was another one of my passions is looking at ruined buildings. Um, so we get ruined castles over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like you have some beautiful places to go hunt for food. <laughs> yeah. So it's some great places to go, um, but also just those vacant vacant lots mm-hmm. uh, where, where weeds get in. So I know over in, uh, certainly in New York State, uh, the Japanese wineberry um is is quite prolific i wrote down the name of it because i just know it as the wineberry um which i can't find so maybe we'll edit it out <laughs> okay no problem <laughs> um but there's so there's these little little corners uh, uh next to industrial sites next to shopping centers um sometimes uh, next to schoolyards, next to where you work, outside hospitals. Um, so anywhere that they put uh, plant support, and that can be wild, that can be self-seeded, and that can be planted. So the idea of only going to forage places, uh, foraging in the woodlands or only at the coast is, uh, for me, that doesn't quite work. It's it's foraging everywhere. It's there. There is places everywhere. And I think the Edgeland describes those, not the, not the not the city, not the countryside, but those kind of juicy areas in between mm-hmm. where plants can really get in and grow. So in your book, you've got a number of really fabulous recipes. And I'm wondering, can you tell us a bit about some of your favorite plants or mushrooms to forage from woodlands versus which ones might you find in more of like an open meadow or kind of disturbed soil areas? along the side of agricultural fields or where do we find all the best ingredients okay good question um so the the mushroom side of things okay my favorite 
one of my favourite mushrooms is the hedgehog mushroom, mm. uh, named because it looks very hedgehoggy. So they've, it, it's a very good one because it, it's a good one for beginners because it has spines and mm -hmm. uh, no other mushroom has spines in that way. Uh, they're either gilled or poured. So it's, there's no lookalikes, especially in the, in the UK at least. Um, it's great, it soaks up a lot of butter, it's great with wild garlic. Uh, and I, I think my favourite recipe with that is, uh, is a Siberian mushroom pie. It's a delicious thing. It's something mm -hmm. I came across in an old, an old sort of Soviet era, era cookbook. So it was a, an old Russian recipe. And it was just for mixed mushrooms, but it works particularly well with sort of good hearty mushrooms like the Belitas um, uh, porcini mushroom mm -hmm. or hedgehog mushroom. And it's based like, a, have you ever had a calzone? The sort of folded over yeah. pizza? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's very much like that. So it's a bready uh, pie crust um, and that soaks up a lot of the inside Juices. of it. Yum. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's wow. delicious. Uh, that was excellent and that was a great surprise to find find that to unearth that and it's it's one that I'll come back to every mushroom season um, so I think that's one of my favorite mushroom recipes you were talking about where else to forage I'll, I'll approach those two again but where else to forage um, and some of the ingredients to find so something we call we call fat hen uh, which is a chenopodium so I know there's very similar plants in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, pigweed, I think, or lamb's yes. quarters. Yeah. Lamb's quarters, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so especially on organic farms, uh, often when you get spent corn and it's been left, it will grow up there. It would often grow in sort of more fertile patches of soil. Um, so you'll see little patches of it. Disturbed field edges, you'll see it growing. And that is in my opinion, like a more superior spinach and can mm. be used in exactly the same way. Um, and there's a, a great story in the book where I talk about um, some friends of mine that came visiting with their sons. We were camping and next there was an agricultural field next to the campsite and it had been left for the weeds to grow. So the, 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 they'd cut the crop and the weeds, weeds had been left. And the kids had been playing up all day <laughs> but something I don't go into the book you know being a, as kids are and we needed a focus for them and so I showed them what this plant looked like they went into the fields and they were a good sort of hour I suppose it was seemed like quite a long time they were quite quiet and came back with this plant and then they all cooked dinner that night That's and great. the next day and it was it was fantastic to see kids that had been you know they were they, they were being kids they were all boys four boys all together and they're all just being quite feisty and then suddenly they've got this focus and they've got something to do and it's all they needed and it, it was a real magical moment just to watch them cook us dinner you know that was a great yeah. for them but I think because they're invested in it um you know some one of the older kids wouldn't have eaten anything green before that um, not not my kids I should say <laughs> and, then, and then when he got to that stage of uh, of just being investing it and doing himself um, he had more agency about his own food mm -hmm. and and it and, and that really fed into the other kids it was yeah it was a magical moment um, 
so Great. I think that we, we used that to make a pesto. That was their main, uh, that was their recipe. So yeah, I think that kind of answered your question with another with a story woven in. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I, well, I mean, I, I love this concept of giving people agency and ownership over their food and its origins. And I know you also teach workshops for adults. Yeah. Um, what are those experiences like for people that have never foraged before? I mean, as you're kind of teaching them, do you do you see that that they're really it's just an eye opening moment for them to to really be able to understand and know how to transform resources from the environment into foods that that can that they can eat? Yeah, yeah, you do. I do watch. A, I do see a trans transformation with people. Uh, what what's quite interesting? There's something that really sticks in my head. It was a few years ago where someone at the start of it uh, couldn't see anything other than green. You yeah. Know, when he looked at the hedgerows and, you know, there would have been uh, 10, 20 different species intermingled with each other and he just saw green. And then suddenly I told stories about the plants and pulled them out. Um, I think that particular one was... Uh, talking about how um, plants really sort of thrive on different things in the soil, so potassium and nitrogen especially. Mm -hmm. And he saw really lush looking nettles, um, dandelions, a few other plants. And he suddenly could spot the different plants and suddenly see the, the, the ground elder and the dandelions. And, and uh, at the end of the course, I usually get to the last half hour, where the participants go out and pick their own food and then bring it back and we talk about what they've picked and so it's not just me teaching passively they're they're going out and uh mm -hmm. finding things for themselves and he ended up from seeing a patch of green to being the one that came back with the most and That's it was great, really nice great. to see yeah um but just watching this sort of their eyes open up and seeing mm -hmm something that they didn't see before and that's it's really magical thing to happen yeah i i've had similar experiences with bringing students out not necessarily for foraging but just learning how to identify plants in the wild and i think you're absolutely spot on it's that storytelling that building of a relationship um, of showing them how to have a relationship yeah. with different species in the environment it's just you know, they go, like you said, from seeing just a sea of green of unrecognizable, undistinguishable, you know, stuff to, yes, to yeah. really coming to like, ah, there's that plant. And I remember this plant is used to make canoes um, by this tribe or, oh, this plant, you know, you can eat. This plant's a poison. Watch out. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's that that relationship is so it's so valuable. And it's, you know, um it's funny when I go on, on botanizing with friends and just on plant walks, I mean, our walks take forever because we're constantly stopping and looking and like nibbling and, and exploring. And I mean, I think that's what, how every good hike should be. Just don't just charge forward, but really stop yeah. and really look as you're going. I mean, sometimes you can't get part. I, I can be stuck in a car park talking about. Yeah. <laughs> just, we've only just got out of the car. <laughs> It's like, oh, what's that? You know, yeah. that's <laughs> <laughs> great. That's great. Well, um, one of the recipes in your book that really fascinated me is a plant that we have that grows here in Georgia, and it's Magnolia grandiflora. These beautiful, yes. large 
magnolia flowers, the southern magnolia. And I, I, I didn't realize that it was edible. What can you tell us about that plant and how you prepare it? Well, I mean, interestingly, uh, I've been sampling a few more since I wrote the book. Um, and in the book, I talk about having a ginger taste. And it does. A lot of them do. Mm -hmm. have, a lot of magnolias have ginger taste to them. And you can pickle those. You can use that as, uh, uh, yeah, you, you, you basically pickle it in a sweet pickling vinegar. Um, you just take the petals or what part of the plant? Just the petals. Yeah, just, just the petals. Um, the other use is it, it is in salads. It's really nice in salads. There's a, I don't know the exact plant because it was just growing in someone's garden. Um, tried some of the, the petals of that and it had a basil-like flavour, mm. which was really quite, and it seems the more purple the plant, uh, the more purple the flower uh, blossom, the, the, the spicier it is. So the more gingery flavours seem to be the, the two-toned, um, purple and white and then the more basily flavors are the more purpley ones but it was quite interesting to, to, to try those so I've tried those just in the salad as you would basil mm -hmm. that's quite delicious um, the pickle is the thing that's mainly used with them another one that always seems a bit of a cop-out because it's always going to be delicious is uh, to dip it in batter and then deep fry it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. It's still vegan, right? It's <laughs> vegan. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can make a vegan batter and deep fry, and it does seem like a, like elderflower fritters. They they are delicious. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, I I just harvested harvested a bunch of elderflowers. Um, I'm actually making a liqueur though, so I didn't eat them, and so I'm gonna make I make a tasty. Um, my own version of Saint Germain. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it always seems a, a cheat. Have you read um, Stalking the Wild Asparagus? Your uh, oh, no. Gibbons. It's a brilliant book. Um, and a lot, but a lot of the recipes in that, he talks uh, uh, sugar, 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 the sugar, sugar. And you do have to do that with a lot of wild foods. I think the there's quite a quite bitter compounds that we're not used to and we have to sweeten them up and you can train yourself to get used to these different flavors but often uh sugar is what's what's needed um uh, uh but i found an interesting point i'm just going to sort of free <laughs> find yeah. an interesting point with that the the so the mahonia the oregon grape um uh Mahonia aquifolium. It, so the, the the berries are quite tart, and you really only have them in uh, a, a small amount. But my son and I were uh, experimenting with them. Uh, we'd, we'd read that you can mix them. That normally they grow in Douglas fir forests. That's their uh, they're an understory plant in the Douglas fir forest in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And and they also grow with something called the salal berry. Now I haven't taste of the salal berry because we don't get them here uh, it's something i'd like to do i'd love to come over and and explore the woodlands yeah uh, have, you, have you had a salal have you it's like heather family it's, i don't uh, believe i have no but it's yeah. a sweet berry and it would have been mixed with uh, the mahoney berries and mm -hmm. that took away some of the tartness so we experimented with raspberries and blackberries and mixed those with the mahoney berries and they're delicious. So just mixing that tart berry with the um, uh, with something sweet took away that, and it, it took away that need to use uh, sugar 
when you're mixing it. So that was that was a real eye opener, just having that nice experiment. Because otherwise, it is easy to to say yes, you can eat this, you can eat that, but you need like ten pounds of sugar to make it. Part of it. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> yeah, takes away from a bit of the health value there. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. I guess one other thing that's important to distinguish for people is that just because a plant or a fungus is edible doesn't necessarily mean that it's edible in the raw. And I'm thinking, for example, of rose hips. I love rose yeah. hips. And, you know, it, it, I've, I've in the UK, I've been traveling, I've seen some very large rose hips just growing um, in hedgerows. And they look so beautiful and red and you almost want to bite into them, but you should not bite into them, right? What can you tell us about rose hips and how they should be prepared? So yeah, rose hips, they have uh, hairs around the seeds and it makes it quite irritating. So you can't, uh, you can't eat them basically. You, you, you're right, you can't bite into them. The only one you, there's one, one you can, uh, which is the rosa rugosa, which has big fat fleshy uh, hips and you can chew around chew around the flesh, chew the flesh off and leave the um, seeds intact. But the best way really is to make uh, rosehip syrup. So this is where we go back to the sugar, <laughs> but it is delicious. So you, and you can make a tea, you don't need the sugar for that so much. You simmer the rosehips in hot water and allow, allow, the, um, uh, allow the juice to come out of them and permeate into the water uh, and and then drink that. Drink that as a juice, and that can be sweetened. Um, you can. It does lend itself to sort of more savoury recipes as well. Mm. Um, so you can boil them and squeeze them through a cloth, and that really gets the um, the juices out of them. Uh, squeeze them through a cloth and put them into soups. So they're not quite nice and savoury soups, and that's a way of eating them. And they've got a really uh, they've got a lot of vitamin C in them. So weight per weight, they've got, you, they always use oranges as the yardstick and oranges haven't really particularly got that much vitamin C in. Oh, wow. So mm -hmm. that, so it's uh, um, a lot more vitamin C than, than oranges. Um, and it seems that it's quite, usually when you boil, um, vitamin C uh, is degraded through boiling. Um, but there's so much in the rose hip that you can boil it and still have enough and wow. still have uh a, a lot of vitamin c in it so i think some of the recipes would be the rosehip syrup which is great rosehip tea which is mm -hmm. nice uh boiled rosehip squeezed through a cloth um into a beetroot soup that's very Ooh, good nice. yeah um a uh fruit leather as nice mm -hmm. as a fruit leather and you, you tend to do the same method with all of them you want to squeeze it through a cloth um, and that gets rid of a lot of the irritant hairs. Nice in a smoothie, actually. Uh, nice in ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's very versatile. It's a very, it's quite a delicate flavour, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it still lends itself to sort of dairy sweetness, uh, sweet sweet desserts. Um, yeah, it's it's worth experimenting with. So when you forage for rose hips, do you typically um, process them fresh or do you, are they okay to dry as well? I'm just wondering, for example, um, for those that are listening that maybe don't have 
access to land where rose roses wild roses might be growing and but still want to try rose hips can they order just dry whole rose yeah. hips to yeah use? yeah um you can get them i know here you can buy them from home brewing shops online i can imagine it's it's more than likely exactly the same in the states yeah um and they i mean they seem to be quite good for all sorts of wild ingredients dried um so often because i'd be doing press at the wrong time of the year and i need to get an ingredient in and it's these homebrew shops where you can get elderberries and rose hips that i'll go to to get those um they freeze so you can pick them and freeze them and nice. then have them at the right time of year and that goes from you know a lot of wild foods there's a really interesting one called uh, himalayan honeysuckle um or the toffee berry and it's the the berries don't ripen at the same time so in order to get enough uh, for a recipe you pull them off put them in the freezer so if you've got one in the garden or grown one grown locally you'd be picking a few off freezing them and then wait until you've built up a cache and then using them in a recipe. And nice. um, they're really nice in a, like a raspberry ripple ice cream. Yeah, they're delicious. Mm. That's great. <laughs> Keep going back to the desserts today. That's okay. Wild, wild foods can also be very delicious. That's, that's right. Well, um, another, another um, uh, type of wild foods that I enjoy are also um, wild tea ingredients i was wondering if we could cover that a bit i mean maybe start with something simple like a garden herb um perhaps lemon balm which you can also find in the wild but i think a lot of people might also grow that in their in their garden yeah and and if you grow a little you find you end up with a lot of it yes you do <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've certainly got some of that um lemon but i mean it's a really easy tea it's uh a handful of of the herb and you put it into hot water. So I put it into a teapot, let it brew, and then have that as a tea. Um, it's nice mixed with other things. It's nice with things like nettle. Um, one unexpected garden one was the peony, and I didn't expect, so the peony blossom, and they have these big, uh, you know, big blooms on them. And you find when, it, a lot of people say this, it seems a shame to make that into tea when you've got such a lovely flower. But as soon as it starts to drop the first few petals, you can take the rest of the flower off. So as if you were deadheading, so then just pick away the blossoms you don't want uh, and use the rest as a tea. And it's got a really nice uh, smooth mouthfeel to it. It's a really mm. kind of full bodied tea um, and, and worth experimenting with. And I'd mix that with uh, a plant called rosebay willow herb. I was going to ask you about that one as well. Yes, I tasted that once um, with with some friends when we were out on a hike. Uh, one of my friends collected it, and we we made a tea of it. She she knew about it obviously before. Yeah. But what yeah. can you tell us about about rosebay willow herb? So did you have it fresh, or did you? I, I think I also nibbled on it fresh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, because the best thing to do, so rose bay willow herb, it grows on the roadsides here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, uh, you, you get uh, you get huge colonies of it. So up in Northumberland, in the north of England, sort of border of Scotland and England, um, you see whole fields of it, whole hillsides of it. And it's a beautiful looking plant as well. Um, 
like bright pinky flowers, sort of mauve pink flowers. Um, you can take the leaves off those and you don't don't use it fresh in a tea, but you need to ferment it. So you roll them mm -hmm. into balls, drop them into a, a, an earthenware pot or just a breakfast bowl, roll them up into little balls and pop them in, put a, uh, a plate over the top and then leave that for about two to three days. Um, on a warm day, it can be much less. You can do it in about 24 hours. Yeah, I think and we left ours in the car. We rolled it up and like it was, <laughs> it was just in the middle seat of the car, like full of herbs in this car. <laughs> really? <laughs> but yeah, so uh, did you have the name Ivan's Tea for it? Or... Yes, yes, yes. Ivan, yes. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So it's, it's a Russian recipe. Um, yeah, it's really tasty, isn't it? It's uh, and once it's fermented, so a day, a day to three. Once it's fermented, um, dry it out. So I use a dehydrator. You can use an oven. Um, you can have it fresh, like you had, of course, uh, but it lasts much longer. Uh, but the beautiful thing about it is that it's not diuretic. There's so many of these teas that are diuretic. And so to have a tea that you can just drink all day without any unwanted consequences yeah. is brilliant. <laughs> um, and it's a it's an uh, it's an analog to black tea as well. So it does taste a lot like black tea, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Um, so you can have it with milk. You can have it without milk. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and one of my favourites, and it and it just reminded me, I need to I need to pick some and make some because I haven't made my batch for this year. <laughs> And it's just in season, really. It's just coming up. Uh, That's great. Exciting. Yeah, one of my favorites, though. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. So when you're when you're collecting it to make a bigger batch for use throughout the year, I mean, do you get like how 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 much of the leaves do you need to kind of ferment? Do you take like a grocery bag oh, full and oh, like yes. kind of let it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a lot. Uh, That's that. Yeah. Uh, Two. Yeah, two grocery bags, mm -hmm. uh, I think we had, um, and that ran out. We made that last year in June, and that ran out in November. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a good favourite tea. That's great. Yeah. Because it, it, it rolls down to nothing. That's yeah. the trick. So you, you, you spend all this time picking it, and it rolls down to nothing. Um, the, the beauty of it, though, is that you don't have to take the flowers off. So once it starts flowering, you can pull the leaves off. And leave the plant in situ so you're not disturbing it for the wildlife um and i think that's one of the sort of nice sort of treading a bit more gently as you forage uh things you can do because there's, there's a tendency to think to have that sort of big game hunter um ethos mm -hmm. when it comes to foraging of getting the big baskets of mushrooms and bringing them home which is great if there's enough mushrooms around but yeah. if you're uh somewhere that's got quite a big population and lots of people do that and then suddenly everything's gone um so i think that's yeah that's a different point entirely but <laughs> yeah no i think sustainable harvesting is is really important um as you say for maintaining the pop the wild populations also leaving some for the animals that also depend on yes. these foods um yeah. and other foragers so yes. yeah. yeah it's great yeah well, one topic I wanted to hit before we wrap up is around this concept of attitudes around foraging and how it differs between different cultures. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of of how certain plants or fun or, or mushrooms might be really highly desired in certain cuisines, 
but but you know just completely ignored in others and what have you what have you come across in your studies on, on this topic I, um i think the the one that springs to mind because it's i've got one in the garden at the moment is the amelanchia um mm. how the service that's a, berry yeah uh -huh. yes yeah yeah um yeah june berries the other name mm -hmm. could be, yeah um and in so indigenous american culture and i, I think am i right in saying in american culture that's quite wide, widely eaten is that right was it something that's I would not say it's it's still a very novice type of wild food we we in atlanta um there was just the first service berry festival like a little festival where we celebrated right. service berry um, but it's, it, I think it's more, more popular in Canada, probably where they call them Saskatoon. Saskatoon. Um, there is, yes. 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 Yeah, so yeah. yeah. It goes by all these different names, but in that genus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, they're delicious. They're, they're really tasty berries and it's used as a, a landscaping tree here, mm -hmm. um, but nothing else, you know, and people don't eat it. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's amazing to see that it's just not known about and uh, not at all known about and it's something you know it's got so you can tell a plant's popularity by how many names it's got so we what do we come up with the amelanchia saskatoon juneberry there's lots <laughs> names for it the um service service berries a completely different plant over here but it's mm -hmm. it's amazing how many different names for it shows how edible it is and how delicious it is so yeah. the, bil the bilberry's the same over here as bladeberry mm -hmm waterberry um but yeah it's just not known about it and you'll see it outside shopping centers and outside a shopping mall um that that's quite interesting and then garden plants so we've got something called the the ice plant sedum spectacularly it's changed it's mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, called something else now but the the sedums and they're just a fleshy garden plant and mm -hmm. yet it's in Japanese cookery that's used as a green vegetable. The same as the hosta. The hosta is mm -hmm. a garden plant um, used a lot in Japanese cookery. Just grown in garden centres here, mm -hmm. you know, gardens and garden centres. Uh, and it is amazing how the same plant can be treated the same way in a different country. Uh, it can be treated totally different in a different country. And there's just uh, and even sort of pockets of people within those countries will treat the same plant differently, like the amelanchia. Mm -hmm. yeah it's an interesting point <laughs> it is interesting it is it is it's fascinating i think it's it's going back to that relationship to nature it's so much fun when you realize oh wow that that shrub i have in my yard <laughs> is yes. actually an edible plant <laughs> i can yes. make something yeah. delicious out of i mean for me that's definitely going back to the magnolia i mean i love magnolias because they're so beautiful but i was like oh i can also make some lovely pickles for my future salads that I, yeah. I wasn't aware of before so i think there there's a lot to discover um within you know places that you might not necessarily expect to yes. have foods growing yeah. great well david um let, as we wrap up, can you tell us uh, where can the audience find out more about your books um, and any um, workshops that you have that might be coming up? Okay, so this is out. So this is uh, the, the latest book, Where the Wild Things Grow. Mm -hmm. um, it's not out in America till September, but it's uh, you can find this in British bookshops. Um, I think it's just recently come out in Australia as well. That's great. Um, 
the audiobook's available in America at the moment, um, and I, th I think the Kindle. So that was one of the books. There's uh, oh. uh, here's the UK version and the US UK version of Family Foraging. That's great. Is this is this uh, guidance on how to how to do foraging with kids, or what's that one about? So yeah, the uh, Where the Wild Things Grow is definitely a tome uh, and goes into great details over a hundred thousand words in there, nearly three hundred plants. These ones. Uh, the family foraging is pairing it right back. You've got maps of where to find them. Uh, there's only 30 plants, well, 30 plants of mushrooms. Um, simple recipes, simple ID. So very much the sort of introduction level. Introduction, yeah, yeah. that's great. Uh, workshops, davehamilton.co.uk. Uh, I put on various workshops. I'm doing a lot of promotion for the books. Um, and find me on Twitter and Instagram, same tag for both, which is at Dave Wildish. Great. Yeah. Well, wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you so much, David, for, for sharing this with us. I had a lot of fun learning about plants and I really enjoyed reading your book. It was really, really well done and some amazing recipes. I'm excited to try. Great. Great. Right? Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype. Um, you can find this episode and all of our other episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find the video recording of this episode and our other recent episodes at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to the show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in every week. Um, a couple of other uh, uh, announcements. If you have a moment, please go to our uh, site on Apple Podcasts and hit those five stars for us. We have over 500 people following us now on Twitter and Facebook, and I'd love to see 500 stars um, on Apple Podcasts as well. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>